It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For 18 years... 18 long years, my party has been in opposition. 1997. Tony Blair and New Labour stormed to power in a historic landslide victory, bringing to an end nearly two decades in the political wilderness for the Labour Party. Today, we are charged with the deep responsibility of government. Today, enough of talking. It is time now to do. Thank you. Now, in 2024, Sakir Starmer is hoping for a repeat performance. And according to one of the most highly respected polls published last week, he could well succeed. Is being claimed if there was an election tomorrow, the Conservatives would be facing a 1997-style wipeout. Before the end of the month, the Labour shadow cabinet will start behind-the-scenes talks in Whitehall as if they're a government in waiting. He's written to the cabinet secretary requesting that Labour begin talks with the civil service, a crucial part of the pre-election process. And Rishi Sunak has already said he is happy for those talks to get underway. So what would Starmer actually do if he got to number 10? And who would be going into Downing Street with him? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Return of the Blairites, how Keir Starmer is harking back to the 1997 playbook. I'm Philip Collins. I'm a columnist on The Times, which I have been with a short intermission for 13 or 14 years. And that shows you the ancient history we're going to be talking about, because before that, I was the chief speechwriter to the Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And uh, in my intermission between spells at The Times, I also went back to Labour politics and had a bit of time working with Keir Starmer. Well, you've written about your period working with Keir Starmer in your column this week and about a particular moment when you were writing a speech for him 
Well, it suddenly struck me that this was a very important moment, but of course nobody noticed because it was September 2020. Keir was in Doncaster and he was speaking to an empty room in the middle of the pandemic, no audience permitted. It is my immense pleasure to introduce the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer. Thank you, Ruth, for that incredibly powerful introduction and for paying me the huge honour of introducing me today. I know how... And by then he'd been elected in April of that year and so no staff really to speak of and so I was drafted in to help him out with the speech. And it suddenly occurred to me in the course of writing it that the the fact that we weren't going to have an audience was a real opportunity Mm. because... At that time, remember, soon after Jeremy Corbyn had ceased to be leader of the Labour Party, Keir didn't have any control over the institutions of the Labour Party, a party full of warring factions. And so if he'd gone to a packed conference hall, he'd have been heckled, no doubt. He'd have been shouted down. But because there was no audience, it permitted him to say things which he otherwise wouldn't have said. And what struck me about that was that he was absolutely prepared to make arguments which I thought were necessary in due course for the Labour leader to make if he was serious about victory. And it taught me immediately that he really was serious about victory Hmm. and that that is a much higher bar in politics than you might think. You might think it's obvious everybody wants to win, but the question really is, are you prepared to make the compromises with what you think and what those around you think in order to secure that victory? And it occurred to me in that process that Keir Starmer was one of those people who, when he said he wanted to win, he really meant it. And I hadn't thought that of Labour leaders for a long time. And the the polls certainly seem to be backing that up. We had a a particularly significant one last week. Talk us through the the results. Well, there was a big poll done on a quite sophisticated polling method where they don't just give you the headline numbers. They dig into what that would mean at constituency level and try and work out how that will transpire into an election victory. And it came through with a very, very significant Labour majority, much bigger than most people had been thinking. Latest is from YouGov. It's a monster of a poll. It's one of the most extensive since the last election, sampling 14,000 people. YouGov says it means that the Conservatives could face what's been described as a 1997-style wipeout. It would also see 11 cabinet ministers losing their seats, including the Defence Secretary Grant Shapps. I wouldn't be as optimistic from the Labour side as all that. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's a pretty good snapshot of where we are now. Because I have to say, I'm, I'm not one of those people who routinely tells you I don't believe the opinion polls. I do believe the opinion polls mm. because they're generally their methods are good and they're sophisticated. And this is the YouGov MRP poll, which did call the last election correctly. It absolutely did. And nobody believed it at the time. I remember mm. being in the meeting uh, at the times when the results of that poll came through and we really didn't believe it because it gave uh, a result that no one quite expected. The polls at the moment are roughly comparable with where Tony Blair was in the run-up to the election in 1997. A lot of people think that Starmer is sort of basically playing by the Blair playbook. Just stepping back, you know, you worked with Blair. Just remind us how he won that election. You know, he based it on five pledges. We're not promising the earth. We are promising what we know we can deliver. And tonight, I'm giving you just five examples of the pledges we will make. 
pointers to the type of change we want. In each case, we say what we will do and how we will do it. The five pledges were an attempt to specify the hopes that a Labour government always excite. You're always asked when you're the Labour Party, much more so than than the Conservative Party has ever asked, to inspire hope. It's not enough to just say we're competent for the Labour Party. People want more than that. And the thinking behind the five pledges was to give concrete expression to that hope. We will cut class sizes to 30 or under for all five, six and seven-year-olds by phasing out the old assisted places scheme, which subsidises private education. We will get 250,000 under 25-year-olds off the dole and into work, paid for by a windfall levy on the excess profits of the privatised monopoly utilities. Starmer team have mimicked that in a way with five missions, but they are very different because the pledges were small, about class sizes, for example, whereas the missions are enormous. Mission one secured the highest sustained growth in the G7. Mission two, build an NHS fit for the future. Mission three, make Britain's streets safe. Mission four, break down the barriers to opportunity at every stage for every child. And five, yes, we will make Britain a clean energy superpower. So they're, they're a set of objectives and ambitions, and they are extremely distant. You know, that to, to achieve them will be quite something. So to some extent, they're following uh, what they did. But then that's the case of all successful political campaigns. I don't think that the Starmer team are particularly in hoc to that um, election campaign, and mm. quite right too, because it was 27 years ago. It would be like Blair being obsessed with the Ted Heath's campaign in 1970. I don't um, think anyone was obsessed with no, Ted Heath's campaign. Well, quite, in quite. Things change. I mean, the, the the lessons aren't quite as simple as that. You have to respond to the moment you're in, and all of the big issues, I think, are with the exception of the economy, which is obviously perennial. But some of the big questions now, I don't think, even featured in a campaign back in 1997. So I'm very wary of drawing straightforward lessons from what is, after all, a long time ago. Some of the people who were around Blair in 1997, like Alistair Campbell, they keep saying they want Keir Starmer to be bolder. Have the mindset that says, I could be prime minister and I could get elected facing a multiple massive challenges. I have to have the outlines of the answers to those challenges now and campaign on those. And I think just a bit more boldness and a bit more courage. We keep hearing this analogy about sort of carrying a Ming vase across the floor and trying not to drop it. You know, he's being so careful about winning the next election that he's not really pinning his colours to the mast. Nobody knows what he stands for. And you mentioned how Blair's five pledges were very simple, class sizes, things like that, that people could instantly see whether he'd done well or not. Keir Starmer's, as you say, are very ambitious, but they're so ambitious that most people aren't quite sure how measurable they are. Well, I think that critique is a bit harsh. I think that the, some of the veterans of the new Labour years are slightly misremembering what actually they did. They were pretty cautious themselves. Blair and Brown permitted no spending promises at all. And so the whole campaign at the time was charged with being too cautious. Also, Starmer inherited a Labour Party that just had its worst defeat since 1935. I think 
there's another bigger reason which why it's difficult is that Starmer is trying to form policy in the wake of the financial crash. Mm. And what that means is that he is not going to inherit a position from the government where he's got a lot of spare money to disperse. If he were to make a whole series of pledges now and be bolder, they would be rapidly dismantled as being unrealistic. So the missions are deliberately very high level. I know they will take hard work, determination, patience, a true national effort. And for many people, that invites a sharp intake of breath, a raised eyebrow, a question. Can this really be done? It's reasonably precise to say we want to be the highest performing economy in the G7. It's just, it's an ambition. It's not a policy. Yeah. That's the difference. So it's, it's not vague, but it's neither is it a policy. It's a desire. It's an objective. In terms of that, you know, the only, I guess, precision we've got in terms of policy ambitions for for Keir Starmer actually comes on climate. You know, we've heard about this 28 billion a year for investment in green industries. I can announce today Labour's climate investment pledge, an additional £28 billion of capital investment in our country's green transition for each and every year of this decade. Where does that policy stand right now? It feels like the one thing they have been precise on is changing day by day. I think it is changing. I think it still exists. Um, Obviously, we've um, pushed back the ramping up to £28 billion. It doesn't mean there's nothing before that. It means it's ramped up to £28 billion, subject, of course, to uh, the money the government may already be putting in um, and to our fiscal rules. But that is just sensible investment, um, looking at the changes since we first announced this in the cost of debt... It's meant to get to £28 billion per annum over the course of a parliament. They haven't specified whether it'll be £4 billion in year one or six. It's that by year five, mm. the number will be £28 billion per annum. There's no doubt there's a tension here. There's no doubt about that. It's the tension we've just been talking about between being bold and being prudent. So on the one hand, you've got to be bold and creative on climate change. There's a large body of the electorate now for whom this is an absolutely pivotal issue, and which it didn't used to be. On the other hand, you've got the case which the shadow chancellor always adopts, which is, for goodness sake, don't commit to any spending ever before the election. Because what happens is the Conservative Party will take that number, they'll wrap it up into some big number, and they'll say in the first parliament, Labour will spend £90 billion on unspecified climate change policies. We don't know what they are. We don't know where the money's coming from. That means this much on tax, which is why, as a reader, as someone looking at it from the outside, you get a sense of not quite knowing where we stand. And in terms of that, in terms of fiscal rules, are we thinking the next Labour government will have tax rises? Will it be borrowing more? I think whoever the government is, there will inevitably have to be tax rises because of the state of the public finances. So no, I don't, nobody's talking about those yet. No, they're not. They're not. And it, it's a political trick to attribute tax rises to that pledge. That There will be tax rises, I'm sure, but it won't be because of that pledge. So the tax rises that there will be will be in order to re- 
reduce the, the national debt, which is a crucial thing that any chancellor is going to do. It's interesting uh, you say that, though, because Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer have been very keen to talk about how we've got the biggest tax burden in history and how keen they are to, to lower it. But you think taxes will have to go up? Unless they're lucky with growth. But if, you, if that doesn't happen, your options are limited. You're either cutting spending, which is a very unpalatable thing to do, uh, or you are raising some money somewhere. And I think this will be true if it were a Jeremy Hunt who were in office too. I think that talk of tax cuts are, are pre-election sweeteners are, and in fact economically irresponsible. And the big question here is whether a Labour government can increase the investment rate into Britain. And here, both Starmer and Reeves are, are very optimistic that they can because they think, and I think they may be right on this, there's quite a lot of money waiting to come to Britain a lot of uncertainty in America, Europe not in exactly in a great place, waiting on a government which it regards as stable and here for a reasonable investment cycle, and that therefore they think investment rates could go up quite quickly. So of Keir Starmer's five missions, which are mostly about public services, one is on economic growth. If that one on economic growth doesn't come through, the others are looking a bit iffy. It's the crucial one. There's no question. It, it, it always is. It funds the other things. I mean, the, this, is, this was true of the, of the Blair years. I mean, the, the great defenders of the Blair years will, will still, to this day, be able to tell you in great detail the improvements to schools and hospitals and et cetera that were made under, in that time. They were all possible because of the very buoyant tax receipts and really, really good growth period of that time. If that had not been true, all of that would have been very, very complex. And there's another thing, too, which is that in the absence of money, reforming major institutions is harder. The bargain that the Blair years offered was you've got to change your working practices in the health service and in education, for example, but the quid pro quo is that your pay will be increased and it will be more attractive to do the job you do. That bargain is not going to be available to Wes Streeting when he becomes health secretary because his budget is going to be really tight. So the pressures that I think are on public services are even more acute than they were back then. Entry into government is going to be tougher for Starmer, which again is a reason why comparisons with Blair only go so far, because some of the methods that were deployed in those years are going to be a lot more difficult to use. Coming up, the world of 2024 is very different to 1997, but Sir Keir Starmer is surrounding himself with Blairites in the run-up to the election. So who are the people advising him? That's in just a moment. And just a reminder, this weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our behind-the-scenes peek at what happens in the Times newsroom, and it's available to all subscribers on Apple Podcasts in the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Philip, we're going into an election at some point this year. And as you say, the circumstances are very different from 1997. There are a tougher set of challenges that face anybody who goes into government. So it's difficult to draw complete comparisons between what happened to Blair in in 97 and Starmer now. But one of the reasons people keep doing that, I suppose, is because it does seem as if Starmer is surrounding himself by many of the people who shaped the Blair project. Just talk us through some of the characters around him. I'd say the, the, one of the most important um, survivors of the new Labour era, who's really pivotal because he's running the election campaign, is Pat McFadden. We're not going to accept that British politics is just about a new leader of the Conservative Party every year or two who pretends that everything before didn't exist and that it's year zero. That's not the case. Politics can do better than that. Pat McFadden has been around in Labour politics long before Tony Blair. And he was Tony Blair's political secretary before he became an MP himself in Wolverhampton. And he is as wise a political soul as you'll encounter. And he will be instrumental in ensuring that they run a campaign which is professional and clear and avoids mistakes. Because the first thing you want to make sure is your campaign is solid and disciplined. And that's the, the other thing I think that you can draw from the Blair years. What, what Peter Mandelson, you know, the former sort of head of communications for the Labour Party and then business secretary in, in the Blair governments, what Peter Mandelson brought to the Labour Party was discipline. Discipline on message and discipline on strategy. According to the Sunday Times, they've turned to a familiar face in the party's establishment, Peter Mandelson, Tony Blair's former strategist, is helping to craft a message that it is hoped will win the keys to number 10. And they've brought back quite a lot of the Blair inner office, I suppose, from the old days. You've got Matthew Doyle, who used to communications. You've got Peter Hyman, um, who was sort of a policy advisor. You've got all these people coming back. Is there a sense that it'll be easier to operate as they did then if you've got enough people around who remember those days? Well, I think it's more a case of experience. I mean, they've also got Deborah Mattinson, who's worked, you know, did work with Tony Blair a bit, but largely with Gordon Brown. And um, it's largely, I think, about experience. 
And that's really what they're buying. I think what they want is not so much the association with Blair in, in particular or Mandelson or anything like that. It's the fact that they went through a time when the Labour Party was winning elections. Matthew Doyle is talked to the press on behalf of the Labour Party for you know, all his adult life. And it's useful to have someone who's got that experience. So I think it's a good thing to bring some of those people back, as long as they don't bring back the supposition that if only they do exactly what they did once upon a time, it's all going to be fine, because it's not. The world has changed, the problems are different, and they'll apply their intelligence in a different way. I don't think Starmer comes from the same position as them. I don't think Starmer... Uh, would have been would ever have been described as Blairite. I think he comes from left of that position, and that's fine because there's a there's a kind of unity between those two. What you'd call the soft left and the right of the Labour Party are at the moment very very trained upon the prospect of getting rid of the Conservatives. We know that um, Keir Starmer is surrounding himself by people who worked under Blair. How much is Tony Blair himself? influencing what's happening to, to modern Labour? Is there, a, is there a hotline? I think Tony Blair's influence is actually in largely through the Tony Blair Institute. It would be really foolish of any would-be Prime Minister not to draw on the experience of predecessors, Blair, but also Brown. And those conversations take place. But I don't think it's particularly regular and I don't think it's a vitally important force. I think where Tony Blair has, I think quite cleverly recently, started to exert influence is by being one of the few places which is really generative with ideas. Well, tell us about the Tony Blair Institute. Explain what it's doing. Well, the Tony Blair Institute is an enormous think tank and they have defined a a programme of big problems they think Britain faces and they are, they publish their reports on it and I used to run a think tank myself and I know the way the the beauty of having outside people offering things is precisely that you you as the political party are not associated with them directly you can disavow them so I don't think that we're going to see Tony Blair Institute reports suddenly being translated verbatim into policy Mm. but they're part of a ferment of ideas which is otherwise a bit lacking so when the Starmer team end up in government. They think, what can we do? What ideas are out there? That will be one of the influences where they look at. Blair often said that he regretted not doing more in his first term when he sort of had the huge popular mandate. Presumably that's something Keir Starmer will be very, very aware of. Should he almost be campaigning on a two-term mandate? Because Given the challenges he faces, nobody really expects that much to change within the first five years. I think he implicitly is doing that, but you have to be very careful about the hubris of saying that. You know, saying essentially, I want two terms when you're leader of the opposition. But the stress on long-term change, etc., I think is a, is a coded way of, of saying that. A decade of national renewal. Uh, is the central defining purpose of an incoming Labour government. A decade of national renewal is a huge national project to drive our country forward. There'll be no absence of difficult decisions for, for Starmer, but I think he'll discover his mood and his rhythm as a Prime Minister like everybody does. I don't think he necessarily will go in on day one, say, right, here we go, there's the f- 25 things. 
I mean, the Labour government was quite good back in the day at that. Gordon Brown was was you know, brilliantly theatrical at that, the independence of the Bank of England. One of the most notable reforms in our lifetime and mm. absolutely ready to go on day three. So that was a little coup de théâtre. Whether Starmer has anything like that, I don't know. If, if he does win the next election, would you join the throng of, of people going back to work for Number 10? Well, I mean, I've not, not had the invitation, so I would be presumptuous <laughs> to publicly clamour for it. But um, obviously, I'm much happier writing about politics from the vantage point of the Times than I would be doing anything else. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, columnist for The Times, Philip Collins. You can read Philip's column every Monday at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also want to try How to Win an Election with Matt Chorley and three wise political sages, Peter Mandelson, Danny Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie, every Tuesday on all podcast apps. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer was James Shield and sound design was by Mal Lissetto. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.